and welcome to History Factory Plugged In. I'm Jason Dressel, and thanks for listening. Today, we have a fascinating topic to cover as we look at the perils of the past. Should companies and brands be worried that past events and behaviors may have a negative effect on their future reputation? We'll talk to Betsy Hogue, who led a market research effort on this topic, as well as History Factory's founder and CEO, Bruce Weindrick, who has recently wrote some articles, or written some articles, I should say, about how heritage can be both an asset but a vulnerability if not addressed proactively and forthrightly. But first, a few housekeeping notes before we get into the substance of this. Coming up soon on October 6th and 7th, History Factory is hosting its annual anniversary marketing summit. Uh, Our annual conference, which was supposed to be in Chicago back in April, will now, of course, be held virtually. The summit brings together leaders and managers from companies and brands who are preparing to commemorate a major anniversary and connects them with peers in the marketplace who are also planning their anniversaries or have just recently completed the journey. This year's speakers include friends from the NFL, Deloitte, Southwest, Sesame Workshop, Campbell Soup Company, Graybar, and Brown Foreman. So if you're interested, first check out more info on the website, anniversarymarketingsummit.com. That's anniversarymarketingsummit.com. And second, for listeners to History Factory Plugged In, we are offering for the first five folks we hear from a special registration rate of $0. That's right, $0, totally free. That's a $299 discount. So If you'd like to attend the Anniversary Marketing Summit and you want to take advantage of a free comp, here's what you do. First, we'd like you to spread the love on this podcast. Simply share the podcast on your LinkedIn page with a shout out and then send us a link as proof of posting through the Need Help Now contact page on anniversarymarketingsummit.com. That's the Need Help Now tab on anniversarymarketingsummit.com. Okay, so now that we have that promotional content out of the way, let's get back to our regularly scheduled programming. And as I shared before, today we're going to talk about the potential pitfalls in an organization's history. This summer, in a previous episode here on History Factory Plugged In, we examined the history of boycotts and how consumers, investors, and even employees can put pressure on organizations in response to particular actions or positions on a particular business, social, or political issue. But in this era of heightened sensitivity and sometimes conflicting expectation for businesses and brands on a whole range of issues by a broad range of constituencies, what about incidents from the past? Are actions or positions that businesses took in their past that now may be inconsistent with society's ethics and standards an issue? Is this a potential blind spot that leaders need to be prepared for? To answer that question, History Factory commissioned a study, and to hear more about what we learned, please welcome Betsy Hogue. Betsy is the Director of Research and Planning at public relations firm Green Target, who History Factory partnered with on the study. Hi, Betsy. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Jason. It's great to be here. Of course. Well, let, let's jump into it, Betsy. And, and first, give us just a quick overview of what was the purpose of the survey? 
So History Factory wanted to look at awareness of companies in terms of their um, past practices involving people, products, or processes. So a bunch of P's in there that could be deemed as unacceptable by today's ethics or standards. And in order to look at something like this and really drill down on what the attitudes might be and get the full picture of what these things could entail and what the longer term repercussions could be, we wanted to make sure we had a good idea of the C-suite perspective, the investor perspective, and the consumer perspective. And so, you know, some of the, some of the sub-objectives of this then were to look at the preparedness of companies to address such practices, and some of them may be known or unknown. We also wanted to explore the impact that discovery of these practices might have on brand reputation from the three perspectives, and also to understand whether there might be any recourse that companies could take in order to restore brand equity that was lost. And to our knowledge, we didn't see any other such study out there, so we felt like this is ripe for for insight mining. So, so, so the survey was ostensibly focused on understanding how executives, consumers, and investors sort of perceived um, potential risk to reputation through sort of a disconnect of corporate practices between now and what might have been done in the past. Is that that's a fair summary? Yeah, that's a fair summary, Jason. And and we by you know the past, these could be things that happened. 15, 20 years ago. These could be things that happened 100 years ago. We weren't giving a fair timeline on it, but you know, we have noticed that over time when such practices have emerged, they've of course made news and there have been reactions. Um, yes. So when you say practices, um, what, what, what do we mean by that? And how, how explicit were we in the survey of sort of explaining what these potential practices might be? So it's a it's a great question because this was where our own you know definition definitely came into play. Um, we had some flexibility here. We were including within these practices the categories were racial injustice, sex or gender discrimination, financial improprieties. Um, we deliberately took out you know such examples there like insider trading and and such. So we left something to translation there. Environmental negligence was another one. And then supporting potentially divisive political or social causes, which was perhaps the most open to interpretation of our five practice areas. But we felt like that was something really important and really current. We had to look into that as well. We felt like if one had greater magnitude than the other, for example, if we chose an example of racial injustice that had really high magnitude to an investor, they might completely dismiss the role that financial improprieties, even though they're investors, right? I mean, they might sort of, they might they might be biased. And right. so for that reason, we, we let them um, tell us you know, from their own mind, where each one was prioritized. And, and certainly on their side, they probably filled in the blanks with what these things meant. Gotcha. So, so what, what, what did we find out? What were some of the key takeaways um, from each of those three audiences of the C-suite consumers and investors? So we found things like 
Investors were aligned with C-suites on several topics, including the extent to which reputation is going to impact um, investment considerations behind an organization. But the bottom line was that you know, in terms of what would affect that brand reputation, we have all of these issues that C-suites might not even know are there. So, Mm. you know, it it left something to be said where Mm. that's great that they're understanding the severity of the issues and how they might impact the brand should they emerge. But, you know, how much do they really know about these issues? So I've kind of given you the wind up here. The most exciting finding is that 76%, three-fourths of the C-suites are saying that they know about practices in their company's past that might conflict with the ethics or standards that we would hold them to today. But of that group, only 26% of the C-suites said that they would be able to confront those. They were very prepared. Um, So, you know, the fact that we have three-fourths or more saying we know about these practices, but then one-fourth saying, and we're very very prepared to deal with it. I think that tells us that there's a little bit of a disconnect here. Outside of the fact that you know investors were aligned with C-suites on the severity of these things, investors weren't giving the C-suites a free pass <laughs> to any degree. Um, they were telling us that, you know, a big percentage of them, actually 29%, would dismiss investment opportunities outright um, if they found that these practices were in a company's past and they weren't on board with how a company had mitigated. And, and furthermore, 60% said that they would place specific contingencies on the deal. So even if you think, oh, this is good. We've got the vast majority saying they're still on board. Well, they're on board with a lot of other contingencies in place. Um, the consumers were even less forgiving. And it, it really can sneak up on the organizations where the consumers are, are seemingly you know, going along and saying, okay, you might go through the motions and, and, and that's okay with me. I appreciate that C-suites are going to make an effort to at least confront these issues. But at the end of the day, consumers were telling us that they would basically dismiss a product or a service um, if they're not happy with how the practices have been mitigated. Um, C-suites thought that this would only apply to a select group of consumers. And in fact, 60 plus percent were telling us, no, I, you've lost me forever if you don't mitigate these, these, the damage that's been incurred mm-hmm. here. So all of these findings roll up to something where these practices emerging is in fact a big deal. It's, it's a long-term thing. There are serious ramifications, not only on the investment side, but also on the consumer side, on the purchasing of such brands and services. Hmm. Yeah, and it's that when 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 I saw that that the results on the consumer front, one one of the things that really struck me was we just did a podcast uh, in over the summer on boycotts in light of everything happening with Facebook, and one of the things that uh, I talked with um, uh, Professor Schweitzer from Wharton about was that boycotts fundamentally don't last because consumers get lazy. So 
um, to put maybe a little bit of cold water on the survey results, but also maybe give a little bit of silver lining to uh, to executives, investors who are terrified that something could come out that would, you know, get consumers to leave them forever. Um, the, the, the data over the long haul sort of suggests that consumers are lazy and ultimately mm. price and convenience went out. So even if your heart says, I'm never going to go to PP ever again because of, you know, my you know, concerns about, you know, what happened in the Gulf. Um, at the end of the day, you're not necessarily going to, you know, drive the extra three miles off of the uh, off of the exit uh, to go to a shell station if the BP is right there. Um, yeah. um, but but having said that, it doesn't necessarily uh, change the fact that there is whether it's real or perceived there, there seems to be a real a real issue there. Um, I guess yeah. the one that kind of surprised me the most was the one around investors, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the one that sort of sort of struck struck me. Um, mm-hmm. in ter- and, and I think it shows, obviously, how, um, you know, ESG really is taking hold considerably uh, as, a, as a strategy. Would you agree? Yeah, very much so. I mean, ESG is basically rolled up into these decisions by and large. And so... You know, the other thing, Jason, is it, the investor who might pass on you today or who who blackballs an opportunity, um, it could be the biggest investment opportunity that a company gets. And that's something really important to remember, too. So definitely the standards have changed and investors are holding them to that. Um, and and that's, that's not going to go away. ESG is only going to become more of a mainstream conversation topic. So that's something really important for us to all note. Um, but also, I mean, I think you with with investment, you just you never know when that game changing opportunity is going to come along. And so, if you're dismissed today in favor of something else, you may never have that opportunity again. That's a big one. The comment you make on consumers with the short term memory, it's a really astute one. I think the the damage with the the boycott is that there's often so much emotion behind it. When we looked into the specific yeah. group that had said, um, you know, I, I would stop purchasing or I would I would not consider purchasing these products and services anymore. That same group, in very high numbers, was also informing family and friends of the discovery. So they were spreading the news wherever they could. And we all know from from other survey work. I mean, it's it's pretty well known that referrals are a main source of, you know, product awareness and service awareness in the first place. So that's, that's very damaging as well. There's like a second wave that comes off of that, even if these original consumers do come back to your product or service. Yeah. Well, and last, last question. Um, So a lot of the focus on the survey was really, it sounds like from more of an external perspective in terms of the perception um, by investors, uh, by consumers. Um, What about internal audiences? Did the uh, survey indicate any insights with respect to how the C-suite might be concerned about the implications of these issues as it might relate to um, to talent or other internal matters? Yeah, they did. Um, we asked a similar question to investors and to C-suites around which of the following, and we gave them a list, would have the most detrimental impact on your company should any of these instances come to light. And, you know, for the investors, we asked, 
which would be of the greatest of greatest concern in terms of their investment considerations in a company. So we expected these two segments to deviate in terms of their prioritization. We had um, several HR factors listed there as well as the typical investment factors. And both investors in C-suites uh, ranked as their, their number one damage to brand equity, which is understandable, right? Um, for C-suites, actually 72% of them chose damage to brand equity and they could select as many as they wanted here. Um, investors chose that um, in, in majority numbers as well, 57%. But beyond that, it got a little bit interesting because investors ranked as number two recruiting and retention. And, you know, this is something that has both internal and external um, prioritization to it. Investors are going to look at the type of talent you're drawing to the company, the type of talent you're able to keep there. Of course, that's a really um, attractive investment attribute if you're able to recruit and retain. For C-suites, it was a little further down the list in favor of increased legal liability, understandably a huge cost for them, and decline in employee morale. So Jason, you know, as far as, you know, what, what, what employ, employers worry about here, they worry internally, are we going to suffer a really tough blow? Um, arguably, that decline in employee morale is very connected to recruiting and retention because people aren't going to want to stay um, if the company is getting maligned or blindsided um, based on some of these practices emerging. So those, those two internal factors combined for 78% of selections, which was really interesting to us. Yeah. Yeah. We, we've worked with some clients in um, these matters over the years, as you would imagine. And uh, we worked with two clients, neither of which I will name, uh, both of which were in the financial services space and ostensibly had the same problem, which was that they had to, uh, in order to actually comply with various uh, uh, city ordinances around the country, they had to actually comply with reporting how the companies had profited from slavery. And we did this um, project, uh, we've done this project a number of times for another, a number of financial institutions, but um, two that sort of kind of uh, uh, sort of portrayed that sort of contrast that you articulate. Um, one was uh, a, a bank that, um, was far more concerned about the implications from um, an external perspective and probably was more concerned about just sort of complying with the requirements from mm -hmm. a legal requirement. Um, and the other bank, uh, which um, is a Southeastern institution, which has just by its nature, a very large uh, African-American uh, uh, population, uh, as well as African-American customers, they were far more concerned about the reputation issues beginning first and foremost with their employees and how that was going to cascade out into their you know, communities. So it was really interesting to see how these two organizations with basically the same challenge and the same requirements that they were having to comply with had two really distinctly different kind of um, approaches and and sort of two different issues or sort of keeping them up at night. So, uh -huh. yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. listen, Betsy, I'm sorry. What were you going to share? Oh, no, no. I was going to say, yeah. I mean, I think that's what you see. If we, if we would, you know, cross tabulate these responses according to industries of operation, 
And I, I think we'd actually see some really interesting trends there. We know to a certain extent, I mean, we've done a little bit of that, but when you get really granular, you start to, it blows you away that you see some similar trends happening and even CPG versus financial services, right? Same things keeping people up at night, no matter what industry they're coming from. Yeah, exactly. Cool. Well, really interesting stuff. And uh, thanks so much, first and foremost, to you and uh, the team at Green Target for terrific work. And uh, thanks, of course, for for joining us on the podcast today. So, Thank you, Jason. Thanks for having yeah, me. And course. I appreciate and, uh, it. Have a great day. Yeah. Yeah, you too. Good luck with uh, all the kids. For those, if anyone heard a little bit of the uh, background there, that we're big believers here in uh, what we call authentic content at History Factory. So we weren't piping in like NFL or NBA style. You know, th- th- those were authentic uh, kids working hard uh, at school in the background. There, so. <laughs> <Great>. <laughs> so I'll let you get back to those four kids. And uh, thanks for joining us. All right. Thanks, Jason. Bye. So as Betsy shared, our research found that incidences from the past can be a potential risk. And to illuminate a little bit more about what kind of elements from history could be a liability and why, let's talk with History Factory's founder and CEO, Bruce Weinger. Bruce recently has written a few articles on this topic, including your company's history can make it more valuable or more vulnerable, which was featured in Chief Executive. Bruce, how are you? Jason, I'm just fine. How are you? And by the way, if I hear one more time, Charles Dickens, these are the best of times here, the worst of times. Uh, we've got to come up with something better. Yeah, I, I've been hard pressed to find it to be the best of times of late. So uh, uh, so may, maybe we'll just agree it's uh, somewhere in the middle and perhaps skewing more towards the worst than the best these days. But Absolutely, uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, but, uh, but we do have, uh, we, we do have football back over the last couple of weeks. So, uh, well, so that's at well, least a bright spot. What do you mean? We got the big 10 back as of yesterday. Uh, I'm finally, I am finally happy. It will be abbreviated. Uh, it'll be, be abbreviated as far as I'm concerned. If Iowa doesn't have to play Maryland or Rutgers, I'll be happy as I could be. Cut them out. I don't need them. Yeah, there you go. Uh, well, Bruce, let, let's jump into it. And uh, you've written, you've uh, recently written uh, some articles about this topic of uh, what we've kind of come, come to call the perils of the past. And uh, you've been doing this a long time. So I, I guess the first thing I'll ask is what prompted you right now to, to write these articles about the potential vulnerability of an organization's history? You know, it's interesting. I have always, uh, I think since I founded the company and still play that role, um, put myself in the, in the shoes of the client. Um, I, I serve as kind of the advocate for the client. Uh, I, I do, I think I'm motivated, uh, by the client, by the client's history, by where the client is today. And, uh, the article was really prompted by that. I was thinking to myself, they've got to be They've got to be thinking about this. They, they must be thinking about this. And indeed, what we have found, of course, is that they are. Uh, our, our clients are telling us that. Uh, they're thinking about it. And, you know, we're blessed. And we have such, uh, you know, great, uh, you know, best to work for, best in class, best cultures. And so I figured uh, I, I'm going to kind of articulate, try to articulate 
what they either may be thinking, or then of course, what the article more or less says, what they should be thinking about. So that's why now it was more of my own uh, personal response to what's going on vis-a-vis the way I think our, our clients are either thinking about it or should be thinking about it. Yeah. And, um, you know, as you of course know, we, we commissioned, uh, this, this study and survey. And, uh, when we did that, uh, with, you know, the great council and direction of our partner on that, they intentionally structured the questions in a way that would not be, uh, misleading so that respondents' uh, opinions would be sort of too subjective in terms of maybe influencing some of their thoughts on particular sort of topics. Um, but obviously, you know, given our work and and the the, the articles that you've written, um, you've got some sort of specific, I think, past practices in mind that you view that could be potentially problematic for companies and brands. So what are some of those? What are some of the kind of past, you know, practices uh, that you feel may be particularly um, uncomfortable for companies or, or brands to confront in the current environment? Yeah, and, and, and yes, you're right. Um, the idea, you know, it's unfortunate as, as someone trained in business history and spend a lot of time you know, studying the history of, of business. You know, you can't, pick up, you can't pick up a newspaper on any given day uh, particularly the business section, when there used to be such a thing. Actually, when there used to be such a thing as a newspaper, you can't read a business story online and uh, as a historian and not feel like you're seeing a car crash getting ready to happen again. Uh, I, I sometimes find myself just going, oh, no. Um, the kinds of things that, 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 com- that are problematic for companies are the kind of things that have just happened over history. And so, you know, it depends on really literally how far you want to go back. Uh, you know, you can, you, can, you can go back to literally pre-colonial days, if you wish. Uh, you can then work your way, way through, the, through, through the American experience, uh, whether it be child labor laws, whether it be, uh, uh, you know, slavery. It's kind of interesting when you when you look at developing countries, so you'll remember a few years ago, uh, China had a, a lot of issues with food safety. Mm. And I thought to myself, oh, here we go again. We had issues with food safety in 1903, right? Mm. So the kinds of issues that are out there are literally it's a timeline. Um, but but what, what I find so interesting is, uh, you know, I, I'm 66 years old, so probably the earliest in my own mind. Uh, things that I remember, obviously, with the civil rights movement, uh, um, the consumer movement. I was a car, car crazy kid. So, so I remember Ralph Nader on Safe Day Speed. I thought the Corvette was the coolest car ever. Um, until I became a business historian and started to work my way back and really understood what had affected these, uh, companies. Uh, then, then, then the, the, the times of, practices that could be problematic uh, became much more clear to me. So I, you know, I, I view, I view that a kind of our role is to have that kind of perspective and not only just know that it happened, but know what it was, what, what, what truly not only happened, what did it mean? So that's, that's the kinds of practices I can, I can go one after the other, after the other, 
when we start getting up to, you know, to the newer ones, data security, how about data security? Let's keep back and going backwards, you know, environmental issues, uh, diversity and inclusion. We can go back, 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 back all day long and uh, we'll, 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 we'll find something that could be problematic in an organization's path. Yeah, and it's it's interesting how, to your point, that also can sort of track on a more macro level with the development of of a country, and um, you can sort of see that different correlation both in in different countries, different areas of the world, different industries. Um, so a lot of there's a lot of comparison, obviously, with what we've seen in big tech over the last 20 years. And you and I have talked about this. We talked about this uh, over the summer with some of you know the issues with big tech being in front of Congress and kind of compared that to sort of what was happening with IR2 and IR3 with these other potential you know, concerns with you know, monopolies and whatnot. Um, the, the other really interesting um, sort of aspect of, of, again, one of the articles that you wrote, but also just something that you and I have talked about for years, is how certain past behaviors or actions are now sort of considered not acceptable or potentially controversial, but at the time, they were viewed completely positively. You know, they were for a long time maybe considered a source of pride or strength for an organization, and now suddenly they're they're a vulnerability, or maybe I shouldn't say now suddenly, but they are now a vulnerability. So what are some of those incidents where you know, an organization may have been engaged in some sort of effort or some sort of practice that at the time was heroic, uh, and now they they may almost be embarrassed by it. Well, you know, I can. Uh, I, I was trying to think of some of the <laughs> the, the outliers, and, and how about things like human experimentation? I mean, there was in, uh, eugenics. Mm. There was stuff done in the 1930s and 20s, in which these were enlightened individuals who really thought that they were going to help further the advancement of people through that kind of study. Mm. Uh, so so the, 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 they were all true, the, the motives were good, but, but as we look back at it, you say, what were they thinking, okay? Then there's the kind of the more difficult ones, I mean, uh, how many of our companies uh, did, I mean, remarkable things uh, during during war? Yeah. I mean, you know, now, when we say that as Americans, remarkable things. Uh, they, As I mentioned in the article, enhanced the uranium that perhaps could have been used in the uh, plutonium, could have been used in an atomic bomb. If you're a global company, <laughs> you'll probably have a subsidiary in Germany and a subsidiary in Japan. And we have had those situations. So their global efforts were viewed in a different light than the war efforts of, of, of an American company. Yeah. Drug, drug research. Drug research. Look, you know, it used to be to, 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 to overcome a major surgery, to overcome a major injury. You know, the idea that you could have a painkiller that allowed you to heal Okay. Now, of course, the same people who manufactured the precursors for those painkillers are having their names taken off of the museums that were endowed with the money they made selling the painkillers. But when it, these were miracle drugs at the time, so these are the kinds of things that happened that we now 
in in light of today, they just they just they they, they you, we, you you wonder you wonder truly uh, uh, how it happened. But at the same time, at the time it was done, the people were <laughs> people were promoted. Companies made a lot of money. People got were given raises. People bought houses in the suburbs. Uh, people they, they 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 hung up flags in their building for their war efforts. Yeah, the American dream. <laughs> and how, how so? How, what how do organizations reconcile this? I mean, how how do they come to grip with these challenges? I mean, do they just sort of dismiss their their history outright? Um, Hopefully for our, for for our business that's not the case, but uh, but how do organizations uh, come come to grips with some of these complexities? Well, you know, there's the the way that we would advise it, and the way that interestingly enough, from our study, we would find that perhaps uh, they're not uh, doing it the way we'd advise it. Uh, uh, you know, we would always advise uh, a few things. First of all, um, you know, know the facts. Know the facts. Start there. I mean, understand really what happened. Um, as much as knowing the facts, know who you are today. <laughs> I mean, if, 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 if you are an organization that is mission-driven, purpose-driven, and we hear so much about it, that's who you are. That's, that's the yardstick in which you should be comparing this against. Because if you don't do that, you're not going to be able to get to tomorrow. Okay, that that notion that we refer to as repent and reform, um, that's the process one has to go through, whether it's with your customers, whether it's with your communities, whether it's with your investors, whether it's with your employee base. You've got to go through a process to, to in a sense, reconcile that past behavior with your current your current belief system so that you can move forward or else you're stuck. You're, you're, you're literally stuck. And so that would, that would be how we uh, would, would uh, recommend it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting because you know, as, as we learned in the study, uh, the C-suite are, are frightened of the response of consumers based on knowing some of these things, yet they sort of get it wrong because on one level, they sort of under- well, on, on one level, they sort of overestimate how bad the blowback would be. And in fact, it may be not that bad. But then in another element, they sort of underestimate how bad the blowback could be, um, which was which was kind of uh, kind of interesting. Uh, but to your point, and we've seen this ourselves, you know, quite candidly with some clients where they kind of want to stick their heads in the sand and they're sort of taking the approach of ignorance is bliss. Um, but I think to your point, especially in this environment where information is so accessible and things can explode so quickly, uh, it seems like at least knowing what the facts are and being able to operate from that premise is, is a, is at least a strong place where you want to start, where you, you have as many known knowns as you can and not the unknown unknowns. I, I honestly believe though, that, that, that important point of knowing who you are today is the way that one goes through this process in a meaningful way. Um, and, and by the way, who they are today can be very different than who they were, um, and that's okay. That's what they're, that's that's a that's a vital, growing, evolving organization. But if you don't know who you are today, then 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 this process is 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 going to be painful. Yeah. 
So uh, I, I alluded to it sort of half jokingly before, but in, in all seriousness, you know, you, you've dedicated your whole whole career to helping businesses use their history as a as a positive asset and as a as a source for good. Um, do you think that history is becoming a, a liability and that there's a, a case against history? We've always known. Let's let's first of all be honest. We've always known about the liabilities. I mean, it was a well, it's just, it was there. So, so the fact that history could be a positive aspect, asset always required a, a kind of a little uh, balance sheet, uh, uh, you know, work. And so we used right from day one, our, you know, methodology was start with the future and work back and our archival basis always said, you know, you got to be truthful, got to be honest, you have to deal with it. It's only a skeleton until you bring it out of the closet. So A, we always knew the liabilities were there um, and always brought them to the attention of, of the client. Two, the fact that it's become a, a kind of a, 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 a point of contention uh, with the companies is kind of interesting. Uh, it, get, it allows us to use the exact same methodology we've always used. We're not, we're not changing anything. But it allows us to talk about it. And the first thing I do as a historian, when I see this, is I go, okay, so when has history been a liability before? How, how did we? This is not the first time that history has become a liability for organizations. Sure. Uh, when we first came in the business, the general, the general uh, uh, rule of thumb uh, for, for a corporate council was destroy everything. Destroy it. It's a liability. Get rid of it. Then a few years later, after, again, we've talked about the either the IBM or the Microsoft suit, where they were able to actually dredge their way through one administration to a friendlier administration by having all these records. But now all, the, all of a sudden the corporate council said, ah, it's an asset. Where is all the documentation? We need all that stuff. So, you know, yes, today it's a liability. Um, there's no question about it. I, 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 I would think for the fainter of heart, uh, they will retreat. Uh, that relates again to knowing oneself. I think organizations that would retreat in the face of history uh, are are doomed to become it. Um, I think those organizations that recognize that 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 candor, transparency, honesty, all the things you should have as a as a as a you know that's what your consumers want, that's what your employees want, that's what your communities want. Then indeed. Yes, it's a liability, like any liability, but it's a risk, and it's one that one has to deal with. So I, I honestly feel that it's nothing new for us as historians. Um, I would even argue that there were some historians who probably uh, shied away from it only because they didn't have the confidence uh, to be able to do the balance sheet uh, manipulation to have the asset on the other side. So you have yeah. to be able to go through that. That's that's kind of my thoughts on it. Yeah. Any other uh, surprises or kind of key takeaways from uh, from the study uh, that we did with the C-suite and investors and consumers? I'll leave it. The, the three really things stood out to me. Uh, you know, how many C-suite think that they know uh, what liabilities lie in their history? I mean, to me, that's I don't call it hubris, but it's scary because I know as a fact they don't know. But so that stood out to me. Now we, we did some drilling down and we understand a little more. The other thing that kind of stood out to me was the disconnect between, and, and I think this is a good thing, by the way, the disconnect between what CEOs think would have impact on 
of customer perceptions vis-a-vis investors. CEOs today have been much more sensitive to things like racial injustice and and gender and sex uh, 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 discrimination, where you know the investors are thinking like kind of short term. They don't they don't quite see it the same way. So I I'm very proud of the CEOs responding to things that are, are have great meaning and purpose. And I think that's important. The other thing, and you alluded to it, I was really surprised at the disconnect between what CEOs think consumers are, would, 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 would criticize them about and what they really criticize them about. Yeah. There was, you know, it, it was a huge disconnect to me. And, you know, I sometimes wondered, you know, it's the famous, uh, the, you know, the famous advertising line. I, I, I can't remember who it was, who said, he said, uh, um, Ogilvy, you know, you know, if, if you want to know who the consumer is, it's your wife. Um, again, sex time, but if, if you think about it, um, do these guys not have kids? Do these, do these, do these guys and women not have children? Do they not have wives? Do they not have who are saying to them, no, we really care about the environment, right? They were like, uh, I'm not so concerned yeah. about that. It, that one really threw me off. It seemed to me like, that they should have known that. So those are the those are the three kind of key ones that really popped out for me. Yeah, yeah. So based on your experience, if you were you know the CEO of a seventy five year old global company right now, you know what are the kinds of things that that might be worrying you the most in this moment? Well, obviously, it's if I if I don't know uh, about the the aspect, if I don't know about my history of my company, I can only assume that the people who report to me don't know about the history of my company. So what I'm concerned about are decisions are being made that I'm ultimately responsible for, um, not based upon all the facts, uh, all the insights. And so that to me is what sinks a great company. You can have a CEO who's got the right, you know, the, the the right attitude, the right vision, the right mission, the right all that. But man, they can get bit. I mean, take a look at take a look at great organizations like Arthur Anderson. Took one person, one person. And by the way, the Arthur Anderson culture had been shaped by their history, a history of of of, of uh, a lot of contentiousness in which they recognized they had to work together, and then that. They got contentious again, and one of those contentious offices, with an officer in one of those contentious offices, sunk the entire enterprise. So that would be the thing if I were a CEO. <clears throat> I would want to know, and if they knew I knew, they would want to know, and if they knew, then we'd be a lot better off. Yeah, <clears throat> cool. Well, let's leave it there. Uh, interesting as always, and uh, we'll pick it up again soon. I'll see you at our 100th uh, birthday, and then I'll make sure that we all know. (laughs) All right. I'll mark it down. (laughs) All right. Okay, everyone. That's our episode. Thanks again to Betsy Hogue and to Bruce for joining me. Again, check out anniversarymarketingsummit.com if you're interested in attending the event on October 6th and 7th. Again, that's a virtual event. Plug, plugged in. Tell us about it to receive a free registration. And we hope to see you on October 6th and 7th. 
until then, stay safe, everyone. Be well and look out for another episode in the next week or two of History Factory Plugged In. Thanks for listening.